Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. I have I felt that when um, Ben prayed that prayer, there was almost something quite prophetic in it about trust, and it reminded me of the verse in Psalm 20 that's. It's a great verse. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And uh, I was just uh, as he was praying, I was um, thinking about that verse. I was thinking, I wonder what some of those equivalents of chariots and horses are for us these days. Uh, perhaps it's, it's we trust in the, in the government to sort stuff out for us. Or when we're sick, we, we trust in the health service to sort it out for us or or we trust in our in our job or in our employment or our employer to sort it out for us. What would be the equivalence of some trusting in horses, some trusting in chariots? But no, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And uh, it was almost something I felt as Ben prayed. That there was something, something almost prophetic, perhaps for some of us here, where it just, again, has reminded us on Sundays, it's that opportunity for us to become realigned again with God's ways. And you find so often, if you don't know about you, but during the week I can find, uh, I sort of, sh- if I'm not careful, I shift a bit. I only have to watch the news a couple of times and I'm shifting a bit. Oh, Duncan Smith resigned. Oh, yeah. Okay. Sundays are one of those things that help us to become realigned again with, okay, look, listen, some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. It realigns us. And so I just felt that was quite sort of prophetic for Ben. If, if, that's, if that's you, then be encouraged. God is realigning you and saying, yeah, you know that anxiety you've got because you've placed your trust somewhere where, it's, where, where you're not going to get the end result? Well, be, become realigned. Trust in the name of the Lord our God. Anyway, that's nothing to do with what we're speaking about today. But there we go. Um, okay, we are three weeks into a series that uh, will end next Sunday when John speaks on the resurrection. And it's been a series that has just taken us through what in the Church of England they would call Holy Week. So we've gone through uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. We Last week looked at the trial. I mean, spoke really helpfully just on the trial of Jesus. And uh, this week we come to the crucifixion. And uh, and uh, I think to myself, who is equal to the task? Speaking on the crucifixion. Just helpful speaking, John, when John spoke a little bit earlier, spoke to me and just said, do you know what, Phil, we've got a great message. That doesn't really matter how good the messenger is. We have a great message. That helped me this morning. Um, I read this quote from a, a Christian writer about preaching on the cross. He says this, reliability, not originality, must be our concern as we recount the gospel of Christ crucified. It's not that I can bring you something this morning that you probably will have never heard before. But, but we do need to come back to this story regularly. Um, but we need the Holy Spirit to breathe on it if familiarity is not to breed contempt for us. 
when Paul went to Corinth, he said to them, look, I didn't come with eloquent words because I didn't want the cross robbed of its power. So I didn't come with you trying to persuade you with eloquence because there's something powerful in the message of the cross. Now, what we can, if we're not careful, be swept into is thinking that the message of the cross is more for those who aren't yet Christians. A couple of weeks ago, a really well-known and rather wonderful Christian writer called Jerry Bridges died. And uh, Jerry Bridges was, in, was an American. He was in his late 80s. And he uh, had been a pastor and also a prolific writer. He wrote some wonderful books. Uh, one of them was a book called The Discipline of Grace. And in that book, he describes the second half of that book. is about, if you like, some of what we might call the Christian disciplines, you know, good practices that you can put in place so that you, your walk with the Lord remains fairly close. But the first half of the book was him expounding the grace of God. Because what he recognised was that for lots of us as Christians, we can go through almost this, this sort of timeline in our Christian walk where we're born, we hear the gospel, whether it's as a child or an adult, we have that encounter with God where we're saved, and then it all becomes about living the Christian life, obeying the commandments, it becomes about works. And we don't return enough to the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel is not just for people who aren't Christians yet. But Jerry Bridges said, look, you've got to return to it. He says this. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. The gospel is not just for unbelievers and their coming to Christ. Rather, all of us who are believers need the gospel every day because we are all still practicing sinners. Just in case you weren't sure about that. I think most of us are incredibly aware that we are still practicing sinners. And that's why we have to come back to the message of the cross every day, time and time again. But sometimes I think we might wonder how helpful it is for us to linger there and to dwell there. After all, Jesus is not on the cross any longer. Jesus is risen. Next Sunday we will celebrate that. He's ascended to heaven. He intercedes for us in heaven. He will come back one day. He has prepared good works for us to walk in. There are all those other things about the gospel that are so wonderful. And so sometimes, I don't know about you, but I can think, well, do we talk about the death of Jesus a little bit too much? Do we linger there a bit? Surely there's the whole victory of his resurrection. It's odd, isn't it? That the, Why is the cross the symbol of Christianity rather than the open tomb or the stone rolled away or an image of Jesus ascending into heaven? But yet still, it's the cross. That's the symbol. It's the cross that we return to. But Jesus himself, in the very meal that he encouraged us to remember him by, said, no, no, you've got to remember my death. You've got to remember my death. When Paul talks about it, he says to the church again in Corinth, he says, I, I bring to you what is of the most, the most importance. And then he talks about remembering the Lord's Supper. 
this is of the most importance. It's of the greatest importance. Coming back to the death of Jesus is of primary importance. And the whole of the Bible points towards it. If you read the Old Testament, there are many subtle allusions to the cross in the Old Testament. If you read the New Testaments, the Gospels all are on that journey towards it. And if you read the letters that were written by the apostles after Jesus' death, they all point back to it. Everything in the Bible points towards the cross. Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I, I like this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. So Spurgeon was a very well-known preacher in this part of London, actually. He's buried in, in Norwood Cemetery. And a very well-known preacher. Lots of us will have heard of C.H. Spurgeon. Planted loads and loads of churches. And out of his ministry, in fact, the, the church that Owen and I were part of, that was planted out of Spurgeon's ministry. Many, many Baptist churches planted out of his ministry. And he said this. He said, I received some years ago orders from my master to stand at the foot of the cross until he comes. He has not come yet, but I mean to stand there until he does. In other words, he had this impression that actually the whole of his ministry should be about pointing people towards the cross. So we're going to return to the story of the cross. And we're going to pray now that the Holy Spirit will speak to us as we revisit some parts of that story that we have heard so many times before, that we are 100% familiar with, that children who go to our Sunday school will be able to recite quite easily. And we need the Holy Spirit to breathe on the word of God, so that he brings it afresh to us again. So let's pray. Our Holy Spirit, we do ask you to come and breathe on your word. Uh, we thank you that the story that we are considering this morning and we will be considering perhaps over this coming week as we work towards Easter is the, the most profound and the greatest story that the world has ever heard. And we uh, have the privilege of being able to linger on that story. We thank you that the story of the cross for us has incredible power. It is not a fairy tale. It is a reality. And uh, we pray that you will breathe life into this story again as we just revisit some parts of it really briefly this morning. That through this, Holy Spirit, you would point towards the loveliness of the Lord Jesus and that in loving him more, we will follow him more nearly and see him more clearly and love him more dearly. Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen. So I want to just look at some of the things that the various gospel uh, writers record Jesus saying from the cross as he hung on the cross so that perhaps we can just uh, glimpse again what sort of saviour we have. So the first one is from Luke and 
it's where Jesus has, has just been uh, nailed to the cross. And he says this. So the passage is from Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is a glorious picture for us of Jesus as our advocate. As our advocate. He intercedes with the Father on behalf of the ones who are nailing him to the cross. And he does it for those who are not asking for it or seeking it in any way at all. In fact, completely the opposite. Were Jesus to have said at that point, would you like me to pray for you? They would have laughed in his face. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, which is his biography called Surprised by Hope. He describes himself as the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England, dragged into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Do you know what? Jesus is our advocate when we have no interest in him whatsoever. He is our advocate when we are indifferent to him, when we are hostile towards him, when we don't want anything to do with him, when we are ashamed of him. Do you know that? Those moments when we do walk past those guys at the tube and whatever we might think about that, and they're proclaiming him in loud voices, and we feel a little bit embarrassed and ashamed about that, perhaps with good reason sometimes, but but do you know what? <laughs> Nevertheless, Jesus prays for those who mock him and have no interest in him whatsoever. <clears throat> he is our wonderful advocate. And in Romans 8, we read that God appointed him to be our advocate and that the Holy Spirit is involved in the process too. So in Romans 8, you read where it says that, that the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus intercede for us according to the will of the Father. So the whole of the Trinity is involved in this process. It's not because sometimes we can feel like that Jesus has to somehow persuade a reluctant God to have mercy on us. You know, he's praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The Holy Spirit is praying for us, interceding for us, it says. It says that now Jesus is risen. He's interceding for us before the Father. And we don't want to build up this picture of somehow there's a reluctant God who just, they have to really work hard to get him to listen. But no, Paul makes it really clear. He says that the Holy Spirit and Jesus intercede for us according to the will of God. It's like God said, OK, so guys, this is what you're going to do. You're going to pray for them. That's your mission is to pray for them to me. And then I'll answer. It's this whole mystery of the Godhead. But they are all involved in that process. And Jesus is our advocate when we are indifferent to him, when we are rather ashamed of him, 
when we have no interest in him whatsoever, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He is our glorious advocate. Okay, let's look at another example of what Jesus said from the cross. And this perhaps is one of those that is um, the most beautiful. It touches, probably touches me, um, yes, yeah, certainly as much as any of the others that he's saying to do. It's one of the things that I, that I find really wonderful, and it's his response to the thief who is next to him. So the thief says to him, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's talking to the other thief. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's the thing. Luke's gospel is the only one that tells us about this thief doing this. The other two gospels, the other two what we've called what would be called the synoptic gospels. In other words, they're all built around the same story and source material. So that would be Matthew, Mark and Luke. The other two gospels talk about the thieves and, and, as, and they say those who were crucified with him hurled, also hurled abuse at him. Now we know that he was only crucified with two criminals. It talks about one on the right, one on the left. As far as we know, there are only two. And yet the other two gospels say those who were crucified with him, implying that both the thieves were hurling abuse at him. Now, I can't say that this is definitely right, but as I've read this, I've thought, wow, do you know what this could mean? It could mean that this thief was, was hurling abuse at him earlier in the crucifixion story. And then something happens, and suddenly this guy is realising the plight he's in just emphasises again the great mercy of Jesus if that was the case. This guy has nothing to offer. Absolutely nothing. Do you know what? This guy can't even say to Jesus, look, if you do this, I promise I'll live a different life afterwards. I'll, I'll, I'll make restitution to all those who I've offended against. When he's, they're described as thieves in uh, some of the Gospels. But there's also some thought that these two, because of the severity of crucifixion, may have been involved in the insurrection that Barabbas was part of. So these weren't necessarily just pickpocket type thieves. These were insurrectionists, possibly murderers, certainly serious criminals. And this guy recognises that actually there's nothing he can do. He cannot make restitution to the people who he's offended against. He cannot promise Jesus he will live a different life. He has nothing at all to bring. He's completely empty-handed. Utterly empty-handed. All he does is confess that he deserves what he's getting. And he says, Jesus, remember me. Whatever that means, remember me. There's an indication of mustard seed faith. He's somehow recognising, Jesus, you do have, there is a kingdom, there's something about you. And you've done nothing wrong and I deserve what I'm getting. 
but I haven't got anything I can offer you in return. Nothing whatsoever. And that's how we come. And what does he say? He says, well, we're going to need to have quite a long conversation before I can let you into heaven. So when we get up there, we'll be standing outside the gates for quite a while. And we'll be going through some, some doctrine. So you really understand the severity of what, of what, you, what you've done. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Do you know that? It's an amazing picture that Jesus walked into heaven arm in arm with a criminal. He walked into heaven arm in arm with him. Today, you will be with me in paradise, he says. You know that we come to him with nothing. Sometimes you may feel, God, I look back on my life and I think, I don't know what, God, I don't know what I've done. I, I don't know what I've done. And Lord, I look forward and I think, I don't know what I can bring you that will make any difference. And he says, well, no, of course you don't, because you can't. You can't do anything that will make any difference. You can't make any restitution. In fact, you're powerless. And that's the only way that I'll have you. But if you're powerless, today you'll be with me in paradise, he says to the thief. Oh, what a wonderful saviour we have who takes us. Utterly, utterly empty-handed. We have nothing to bring. The moment we think we have something to bring, we delude ourselves. You can come to him with nothing. This is why the gospel story is important to come back to, because I need to be reminded again and again that I can come to him with nothing. So often I realise I have nothing. And if I don't come back to him, then that knowledge that I come with nothing will do two, one of two things. It will either drive me to despair or it will make me try and work hard to get his approval. But actually, I don't need to do any of those. That's why that word gospel means good news. Because if I had to do either of those other things, repent in dust and ashes, be remorseful all the time, for the stuff I do wrong, or try and work my way out of it. It would not be good news for the rest of my life, but this is good news. And that's why it's good to come back to this, because, brothers and sisters, we come with nothing. And he gives us everything. He takes us by the arm and says, do you know what? I'm going to walk you into heaven one day. I'll walk you into paradise one day. And also, do you know what? I find that just deeply encouraging that Jesus says, now today you'll be with me in paradise. Because there's this whole mystery, isn't there, about him coming back and raising us if we've died, if he doesn't come back before we, before we die, that he'll raise us from the dead. And, and we think, yeah, so what, what happens in between? Is it, uh, am I not existing before? Wait, no, 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 there's something around. Okay, no, no, no. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You're not, you're not going to lie in the grave, thief, until I return. No, today you'll be with me in paradise. His salvation is all sufficient. There is no tiny little bit of insufficiency in it. For now, for the past or for the future. Okay. Let's look at another passage. This again, a very beautiful one really. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus cares intimately for those that he loves. He cares intimately. He cares intimately for you because now you are his family. And just as he looked down from the cross at his mother and the disciple who he loved, and he noticed, do you know what? They're going to need each other. And so even as he hangs there, he orchestrates his grace to make a difference to these guys in their, in their future years. Do you know what? He orchestrates things for us. That's what he does. He has orchestrated for you to become part of a family. Do you know what? When you are lonely and if you are lonely and alone, if you look to him, he will orchestrate for you not to be alone. It says in the Old Testament that um, God puts the lonely in families. And here we see Jesus enacting that scripture. Do you know what? You, you, you look after her, Mary. You look after him. You're both going to need each other when I'm not here. Jesus orchestrates and he notices individuals. While he's hanging there and bringing about the salvation of the whole world and is about to suffer the wrath of God, he is noticing How much more does he notice each one of us in our needs and when we are torn apart by grief or disappointment or confusion or perplexity? Owen quoted the scripture last week about don't ever think that we have a saviour who's unable to sympathise. He more than sympathises. If you allow him, he does something about it. He orchestrates so that you don't ever need to be alone or ever need to be lonely. If you look to him, he will orchestrate through the body grace to you. He notices us. He cares for us. Even at his darkest hour. Okay, John 19. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these words we could probably have about 20 sermons on, I would guess. And, and many people have written books about these words, and I don't intend to even try to go deep at all with them. Some people will question, was, did, at that moment, did Jesus not understand what, what was happening? So he says, what, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it that he didn't understand? No, he fully understood. He'd been part of it. He'd been part of the plan from the start. Is he therefore somehow doubting God when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John Stott, and uh, if ever you read a book on the cross, I would recommend this book. It's called The Cross of Christ. 
it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, it's quite expensive, so you'd want to put it on your birthday list or your Christmas list. But if you're a reader and you want to read about the cross, then this I recommend this book. And he says it's, that this is just almost Jesus saying where he's at. He's quoting a psalm. And if you read Jesus, uh, the things that Jesus said from the cross and in the Garden of Gethsemane, nearly all of them come from the Old Testament. And this comes from Psalm 22. And it's just like Jesus is plucking from his knowledge of the scripture, God, this is what I I'm forsaken. I'm forsaken. He was forsaken so that we would never have to be. There is in this phrase and in this particular moment at the crucifixion, and none of us can quite understand how it works, but that at that moment, Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. John Calvin says this, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. His soul had to share in the punishment. And therefore, somehow, in these moments on the cross, he bears the full weight of God's righteous wrath and anger against the sin of the world and your sin and my sin. And at that moment, God turns his face away. At that moment, he was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. He was forsaken so that he could say to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. But for that to happen, he had to be forsaken. God had to pour his righteous anger on his own son. Do you know what? That's The word for that is the atonement. And there are lots of people in Christian uh, circles these days who don't quite believe that. There's some people who even call this, well, if this was true, this would be cosmic child abuse. God pouring his anger on his own son when his own son didn't deserve it. But that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what the Old Testament talks about when it says, but it was, it was God's will to crush him. Because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. Because he was left alone, you will never be left alone. One hymn writer, so I'm going to read you a hymn, calls this abandonment sublime. So let's listen to this, this hymn that we don't sing anymore, but its words are powerful about the cross. Cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. Here, the king of all the ages, throned in light ere worlds could be, robed in mortal flesh is dying, crucified by sin for me. O oh, mysterious condescending, O oh, abandonment sublime, very God himself is bearing all the sufferings of time. This, all human thoughts are passing, this is earth's most awful hour. 
God has taken mortal weakness. God has laid aside his power. Once the Lord of brilliant seraphs, winged with love to do his will, now the scorn of all his creatures and the aim of every ill. Up in heaven, sublimest glory circled round him from the first, but the earth finds none to serve him, none to quench his raging thirst. Who shall fathom that descending from the rainbow-circled throne down to earth's most base profaning, dying, desolate, alone? From the holy, 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 we adore thee, O Most High, down to earth's blaspheming voices and the shout of crucify. Evermore, for human failure, by his passion we can plead. God has borne all mortal anguish. Surely he will know our need. Cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. O abandonment sublime, let us never forget that he was abandoned and forsaken for us. One more, and then we'll come to communion. John 19. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That phrase, it is finished, could also be translated, it is accomplished. In other words, the task is done. And actually, with the tense that it's written in, it's better translated like this. It has been and will forever remain finished. That's what it really means. It has, Jesus says, it has been and will forever remain finished. Do you know, some of the um, Jews asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. To believe in the one he sent. And? No. This is the work of God. To believe in the one he sent. We cannot add anything to this finished work. And you know what I'm so, so glad about? We cannot take anything away from it. Nothing I do will ever take anything away from this once for all finished work. It is finished. If we don't regularly return to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we will try to add to it ourselves or we will worry that somehow we can take away from it. So we must constantly return to it. There's a lovely hymn that I'm not going to read all of to you. You'll be really pleased to hear, but I'm going to read you the last verse of it. It's called, um, um, my, my Song is Love Unknown. And it's written by a guy in the 1600s who spent the rest of the, the rest of the hymn is all about him just meditating on the cross. And at the end, he says this, Hear my eyes stay and sing. No story so divine, never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, 
in whose sweet praise I all my days would gladly spend. So let's worship for a little, take communion, and then we'll be on our way. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.